Hi, my name is Aisha Addo, and I'm the founder of Power to Girls Foundation and Drive Home. <laughs> You're listening to Unfiltered, the podcast. Hello, podcasters, and welcome to another episode of Unfiltered. In today's episode, I chat with Andy Ayim, who is a serial entrepreneur, an investor, a product manager, and the managing director of Backstage London. Andy and I chat about product discovery, product management, and some of the exciting things that you should look out for as a first-time entrepreneur or someone that is looking to scale your business or product. Let's get right into it. So thank you so much, Andy, um, for being on the Unfiltered podcast. I wanted to be on here to share some of your experiences with entrepreneurship, but then more importantly, to also helping folks that are new to entrepreneurship in terms of like helping them discover their product, what that means and how that is connected to your growth. So if you can please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are right now. Sure. So um, I've got many titles, like some people call me a product leader, other people call me an investor, other people call me a strategist, but at its core, I'm a problem solver. Like I love solving problems. Mm. I love really like understanding a customer's deep problems and their needs and just providing products that solve that, you know? So across my kind of career in the last decade, I've always either been business building or building products that customers love. So right now in my role, I'm managing director at Backstage Capital. I helped to build their accelerator program from scratch and create this blueprint and launch plan so that if we grow into other new cities, we've got almost like a blueprint to follow and a manuscript for whoever gets hired into those cities. So it makes it easier for us to expand once we, we, we grow into new, new markets. Um, and then in the last three months, I've been running the London Accelerator Programme with two awesome colleagues, Andy Davis and Anissa Osman Britton. Um, and previously before that, I've had a range of roles as a products manager in startups and scale-ups, such, mm-hmm. at, such as at the international money transfer company World First, which was acquired by Ant Financial this year, actually, for $700 million. Wow. Um, and about uh, nearly 10 years ago, I co-founded a music startup with my brother and a few friends called Mixtape Madness, which wow. my brother still runs today, actually. Oh, nice. That's really interesting. So what actually sparked your interest in entrepreneurship as a whole? I think like entrepreneurship as a whole, from a very young age, I was just always fascinated with businesses, right? So I'd go to my local shopkeeper and ask certain questions around, you know, where did he get his chocolates from? Where did he, you know, get these, these papers from? And mm-hmm. I remember growing up... Um, uh, my dad used to buy the weekend FT for us to read at home mm-hmm. and no shop in my in my area in Tottenham, North London sold the FT because people in that area didn't read that, that newspaper. The FT is the Financial Times. Yeah. So my shopkeeper had to order in every week a special batch of the FT newspaper just for my family. Wow. And I think that's where I kind of first sparked my interest into business and secondly, kind of my love for relationship building and just learning about the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Um, in the FT weekend, it was a special pay edition paper where they don't only cover like business news but it also covered lifestyle and it exposed me to the lifestyle of the middle class and the wealthy and I was just very intrigued mm-hmm. in how these other people were living life. Right. So what did you actually do with all of that knowledge and all of that lessons that you were getting from the Financial Times at that age anyways? Well to be honest it was like I always I always try and I, it was the first time which I started discovering that I love to feed my curiosity. So when I'm curious about something I would, I'd, I'd just take a step in that direction and see where it leads me and my dad was a minicab driver and um, 
one of his clients was an architect called Ray Goodchild. And I remember when I was 14, I had two weeks work experience with him. And I'll never forget like how wealthy he was. Yeah, he was driving like a really old, like banger, old Ford Escort car. Mm. And it exposed me again to, to like breaking down the myths and, and the, the beliefs I had previously about how the wealthy and rich people lived. Mm. Because I was seeing this, like, this reality with my eyes of how he actually lived, you know? And I was learning about this brand new career in this brand new area of London. And his wife, I remember, was a transcriber for the BBC. Again, I didn't even know what a transcriber was. Wow. So I was getting exposed to this whole different lifestyle. And I was just feeding my curiosity to relearn about different walks of life and how different people um, lived and essentially I was really curious about how different people worked mm-hmm. and across my career I was fortunate enough to travel and work in over 15 countries I actually have traveled to over 50 but for work in particular I've traveled to about 15 countries from Italy to all across Africa to mm-hmm. Silicon Valley and San Francisco and again it was just feeding that curiosity to learn how people do business in different cultures and different countries mm-hmm. and I think that's really shaped up kind of like who I am today and the way I conduct myself in, in business Wow so through Throughout that, all those travels in terms of like you actually going to Italy, Africa and all these different parts of the world for work, how do you think or what do you think are the similarities in terms of like how people run their businesses and what are some of the things that sort of like sets it apart based on culture or based on, um, yeah, based on culture that either contributes to their success or to their failure? I think culturally was, was where I was learning the biggest lessons because like for example, when I was in, in South Africa, it reminded me when I visited Soweto and Alexandra and a lot of the townships that like, just because I was born in London by no choice of my own, mm-hmm. um, I, was, I had high opportunity and high access to opportunity and high potential. So like there was always opportunity and access to opportunity on my doorstep. Whereas if you're born in South Africa and even if you have equal ability and skills to me, you may have high potential, but you have very low access to opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that variance is really, really important because it got me really passionate about how I can create pathways for people um, to access opportunity, networks, and knowledge because there's so many people that are exceptional that are just like me who just are not afforded the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And and that's probably the core lessons that I took. And I know that's not necessarily related to business, but it's something that's driven kind of and motivated me ever since experiencing that. One of the hardships about South Africa was that, like, as, as a black British person going into that society, on the one hand, I could assimilate into black culture, but on the other hand, I really couldn't because they had experienced apartheid mm-hmm. and therefore there was a, a rich history in that culture that I just couldn't relate to and I, and, and I just didn't experience and therefore I didn't fully understand or appreciate how some of the black people felt segregated from a lot of the white people in South Africa mm-hmm. and similar when I go to America and American uh, like African American history so rich and, and steeped into in slavery that actually is very different to the context of British black history Mm-hmm. And and I appreciate that nuance and I appreciate that difference, you know. Um, whereas a lot of the times on paper, people just compare like the UK to the US when there's so many other variables yeah. and differences to the way that we live and we work. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I actually love the fact that you mentioned that because like even if we're bringing this down to sort of like a surface level, it's also around diversity and it's around even the opportunities that people of color get in different parts of the world, the opportunities that people absolutely. of color get in other parts of the world. So it's, it's 
it's actually a really interesting point. So I'm actually going to ask a question that I had, I was not intending to ask, but this is in relation to um, your work at Backstage Capital, right? So I remember when um, the announcement was made around like the fund that Alan was putting together and everyone, every person of color was so excited because of the magnitude of what she was doing, but then also just having someone believing in us so much, right? Um, how does, how do you feel as an individual and as someone that's part of the process and all that stuff? How did you feel hearing about a fund like that? I know you you were an entrepreneur in the past, but how do you think that in itself sort of like changed or catapulted the venture capital world in a way? I think to be honest, it's had it's had quite a massive ripple effect on the venture capital world because for the first time we have a fund that's speaking to the hearts and minds of people of color. LGBT founders, women. But backstage, what was exciting for me was that from everything from the branding to the, to the content to the way we conduct ourselves, we're speaking to the hearts and mind of our audience. Mm-hmm. We wasn't hide, we wasn't like making it a softer message. It was very direct in that there's a under, we need to back underrepresented founders. There's a lack of VC capital and resources going to these founders. Less than 0.2% of black women in America are, re- are receiving VC capital and that's bullshit. And yep. we're here to do something about it. And no other VC firm was really overtly being that blatant about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think the industry needed that. What most people don't appreciate on the surface is that it's very hard to raise a first-time fund yeah. because a, a lot of of institutional money, a lot of money that gets invested into VC, they want to back people that have invested before. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to take a risk on first-time funds. To compound that even more, they don't want to take a risk on diversity and inclusion as a thesis yeah. because for them, that doesn't make business sense. Absolutely. And and it's crazy when you think that actually we're back in the majority of of of, of the world. With the, with the population, like women make 50% of the population. People yeah. of color make even greater than that. So mm-hmm. we're actually back in the majority, not the minority, mm-hmm. you know? And VC as a, as a, as a, as a asset class is designed to invest in outliers so by its nature actually we should be a more attractive proposition but it's hard because that wealth and that capital is coming from traditional sources and a lot of those traditional sources if we're being honest are middle class white men mm-hmm. absolutely so part of the challenge and the conundrum right we're, we're trying to create wealth but at the same time the wealth that we need to redistribute isn't coming from our own communities. Yeah, yeah, wow. I love, love this because this is a conversation that I've been having with folks for some time now. Um, as a founder myself and an entrepreneur, I think one of the main challenges is always around, you know, access to the funding, access to the right funding, especially like in my space, I'm in the tech space, which is actually very saturated. But then I'm in a space that is creating solutions for, you know, a targeted people. And I realized that when you're creating stuff for, um, a very targeted niche, a lot of folks can be a bit, um, it's like, I don't know if it's, they don't get it or if they just feel like they don't need to take a chance on that population. Right, right, right. So there's a lot of like internalized biases that sort of like goes into some of these decision makings. Um, I have been following Alan's like story since I found out about her, to be honest with you. And I mean, she's a resilient and strong woman. I I love the fact that she's very vocal about these things and stands up for all the things and the people that she believes in which honestly I applaud I applaud so much so thank you for your work on Backstage Capital just in case no one has told you we appreciate you and we see you guys and we know that it's not an easy journey but knowing that a fund like that exists or knowing that there are folks out there that are pushing for us it's actually quite heartwarming Um, we appreciate you too and and I think what's interesting as well is that like before the internet 
like all of this was seen as a niche mm-hmm. but because of that there's a long tail of consumers now that there's no such thing as a niche mm-hmm. you know we're so connected now like like I was teaching this to, to, to some teenagers the other day even though you may be born working class and without access to opportunity without the social capital leverage we can gain leverage now because of the internet like like not a lot of people know the backstory but I started blogging about five years ago and through blogging I was writing about this intersection of technology investment and start um sorry tech, like startups investment and diversity and inclusion and one of the people I was writing about was Arlen Hamilton. Off the back of that blog post, I interviewed her for a podcast. Off the back of the podcast, I invited her out to the UK to learn a little bit more about the UK market. Off the back of that intervention, she hired me into Backstage Capital. Wow. But this path that I'm sharing is the opportunity that we have with the internet if you're willing to publish content consistently over a number of years. Whether that's podcasts, whether that's uh, on Instagram, whether that's LinkedIn and you're blogging, whether that's vlogs on YouTube, if you publish quality consistently and you're willing to do it for the long term, whether it's three years, five years, 10 years, you will meet opportunity. Mm. And we've never had opportunity like that before us, but the internet has allowed us to do this now. And I think that's that's amazing. And that's why it's so encouraging to even hear when I first heard that you were doing even these podcasts, because I understand the long-term opportunity you can bring. When people search for it five years from now, whether mm. you're recorded or not, it's still searchable. We can still learn more about you. Mm. Wow, thank you. That's actually really, really interesting how, yeah, the internet has connected us together, has brought us together. So in the same space, how do you think, in your opinion and in your expertise, what do you think is the best way to start a business? Because everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone wants to call themselves a CEO. I mean, that's sort of like the upside of it. But So I think the interesting thing is like when I was young and I was growing up, the rock stars in, in entrepreneurship was like Bill Gates and, mm-hmm. you know, like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and these white middle class men. And actually when I used to look at investing, because I was interested in investing, the rocket star, the, the kind of rock star was Warren Buffett with Charlie Mung again middle class white men but when I used to look at sports and the rap game I was seeing people like Muhammad Ali like Mac Tyson like Jordan you know I was seeing rappers like Nas like Jay-Z like Biggie and these were my rock stars and and those are my role models and then what was interesting is in the last three to five years we started seeing people like Nas form his own VC which is Queensbridge Venture Partners where he's invested in Lyft Dropbox Genius Casper Mattresses and these billion dollar companies Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that a lot of the people that I grew up thinking were rock stars in the entertainment world are actually now becoming investors mm-hmm. in this world. You know, even Jay-Z started investing now. And what's interesting is that as everyone looks at this media, uh, looks at the media and, and really wants to become an entrepreneur, and I have these air fingers going up right now. <laughs> the truth is we should alleviate pressure from ourselves and say, actually, I think I found a problem that I want to solve. Mm. And all I'm going to do is validate whether that's really a problem or not. Take the pressure off ourselves. Don't call ourselves a founder. Don't call ourselves an entrepreneur. Just treat it as a scientific process almost. You have a hypothesis which you believe and go out and seek to prove that or disprove that and just take a step in that direction. And I think once we take take the pressure off ourselves, it will allow us to really 
start problem solving and it may or may not lead to a business opportunity where we can therefore uh, go through entrepreneurship as a route to solve this problem. I actually really and truly love that um, angle because again, you know, the, I hate this statistic actually and I, I, I even hate myself more for even trying to utter it but a lot of folks always say that nine out of ten businesses fail and um, it's, it's always sort of like a rude awakening in a sense because you're wondering, wow, like nine out of ten. So that means out of ten, I only have one um, chance of being successful. Right. But then if I am coming at it from the angle that you're talking about, then I actually have more room to grow and more room to discover all the different exactly. ways that I can actually solve this particular problem. So when you Absolutely. go in with a problem in mind, then it's like the sky is not even close to the limit. I love that. I love what you just shared as well, because because you reframe the problem. You're no longer saying, let me register this business. Um, let me go and buy this logo. Let me get this domain. And therefore, actually, you would not be contributing to that statistic because mm-hmm. all you're doing discovery you're just discovering whether there's a problem to solve but because all of us are racing to do the vanity stuff first like registering the business at company's house in the uk or the equivalent in canada or going to get this logo going to get this shiny website that's what's contributing to the failure we're, mm. we're, we're chasing this dream like it's because it's our idea and we're in love with it when the truth is you're not building a business for yourself you're building it for your customers Absolutely. so the quicker you can go out to your customers and test whether this is something that they want or a solution that they need the, the better you are for it and actually it's a good cadence and pattern to get into in terms of always staying close to your customer and testing things with your customer to make sure it's something that they actually want to need. As you're figuring out what the problem is, what how you're going to solve the problem, it's also part of you figuring out if you are going to be doing this through a service or through goods or whatever it may be. How should people, in your opinion, go about that process? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think like the first thing is before you even go down the road of like trying to find a problem to solve, it's good to just think of even some some principles and some values that you want to adhere to. And 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 this sounds a bit philosophical, but I'll share some of my principles and I'll share why it's important. So one of mine are uh, I'll share three of them. Uh, one is direction over speed. Mm-hmm. I believe that is much better to go in the right direction, even if it means you're going slow, than mm-hmm. to go with speed in the wrong direction. Okay, so for example, imagine that you're on a train line and you know that the train takes one hour to get to your destination and has to go through several stops. Regardless how many times it stops, regardless how long it stops for, you're going to stay on that train because you know eventually you're going to get to your destination. Whereas sometimes when we're in business or we have ideas, as soon as things are not going our way, we get off the train and we act with haste and we run in the wrong direction or we pivot when actually we should have just stayed the course because it's okay to grow slowly if you're growing in the right direction. Mm. Another of my principles is be, be willing to change in the face of evidence. Mm. So even though you might have this idea, if I test an interview with 10 customers and I find out actually that this, this is not a problem to solve or not a problem that they prioritize, that's okay. I should be willing to change because now I, have, I now have evidence, mm-hmm. right? Um, and a final one, just so I don't keep going on and on and on, um, outcomes over outputs, all right? The goal is actually to achieve a measurable outcome, not to just have an output. And I'll give you an example with, let's say, an e-commerce website, you know? I could be on, let's say, ASOS.com and I want to buy clothes. Now, an output would be that ASOS.com has 1,000 visitors that have put items in its checkout. But actually, the outcome I want to achieve is that I have 1,000 visitors that have bought an item. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's a difference between someone that's bought an item and someone that's visited my page. And it's that conversion that really matters. Mm-hmm. So it's really important when you're an entrepreneur, especially to understand the metrics that you're measuring success by and making sure that those are outcomes rather than outputs. No, that's actually, those are really good principles that I'm definitely going to, you know, be talking about now because I think it's really important, especially for first time founders to really think about how product discovery is connected to, you know, their problem solving in itself. And I don't think a lot of folks take the time out to, you know, come at things from that angle. You know, we're sort of like lost in the whole ideology of what entrepreneurship is and what it's supposed to be that we forget that like, no, it's actually work. You know, you still have folks that you're working for, which is your customers, you know, and if your customers are not happy or your customers are not feeling connected to your product or your service anymore, then it's time to really look deeper into what the issue is. So so, so product discovery, the real goal of product discovery is to learn fast what we want to build so that when we commit to writing code with our developers, we build the thing right. Okay, because the most costly mistake we can do is commit to code and develop something that nobody wants. Absolutely. so product discovery is really, really the goal is to learn before we ship so that we can carry on shipping to learn. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's a time box experiment to address four key risks. Okay. And the common pitfalls before I go through the four key risks are that sometimes we have confi- confirmation bias where we, we actually are not really doing discovery. We're trying to confirm what we want to hear. You mm-hmm. know, we have that bias. Or sometimes we do product as a prototype type discovery where instead of testing things with MVPs and prototypes, we're actually spending about three months in a dark room building an actual product by trying to justify it to ourselves by calling it discovery when it's, that is not discovery, hmm. okay? And and sometimes we have big bang discovery when we spend about nine months just basically building a product isolated without speaking to customers. Super risky. Again, that is not discovery, okay? And the, the four key risks that we're really trying to validate when we're doing discovery is value risk, which is will a user want to use or transact with my product? So imagine I have like an international transfer app that allows you to send money internationally. Like a value risk would be, uh, will a user be willing to pay to use this product or to make a transfer using this product? Okay, will they buy it? A usability risk is, does a user know how to use my product without an explainer video or any handholding? You know, can they use it? A feasibility risk is, technically, can we build this product, you know, given our tech stack, for example, given our capabilities? So often with non-technical founders, this is the key risk where a lot of them fall down because they can't develop code and they can't write code, but they want to build a technical solution when maybe it's easier for them to build a business where they don't need technology, such as a butcher's or a florist, but they don't see that as sexy because of the what media is painting startups and tech startups as the way forward. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are not into code. So if you can't inspire a technical person to join you on that journey, you're often failing at this hurdle, the technical feasibility risk. Mm-hmm. And the fourth risk is business viability risk, you know, and that's where we're testing things like from a regulatory perspective, are we compliant? Or from a marketing perspective, can we market this product? Or from a legal perspective, does our T's and C's cover what we want to do with this product? And that's where a business viability risk. So the four key risks, again, are value risk, usability risk, feasibility risk, and business viability risk. And in product discovery, we're trying to address those four key risks so that we have confidence over what we're going to commit to code and build with our engineers. Wow, that's actually really, really good. And I think, honestly, like I'm actually learning so much from you because... 
as again, as a first time founder or as a first time tech founder, I always say this, that I wish that I had all this information mainly because it would have helped so much in terms of like you would cut costs, you would be able to really identify all the different things that you could do differently. Um, Unfortunately, you know, sometimes time in itself is also one of the best teachers because you realize all the things that you could have done differently when sometimes it's a bit too late. So I appreciate this. And I'm so happy that the next generation of founders are going to be able to really, you know, dig deeper into their products and also do that discovery bit because I think that's so, so vital. Um, So how do you think, though, that this process in itself is connected to the growth of a startup? It's it's super important. Like all of the the startups and scale-ups that we see succeeding today, they're all running these processes of product discovery. They're Mm. all trying validate their riskiest assumptions so that they can build with more confidence and deliver to customers. We don't hear about it a lot on the surface, but this is these are the experiments that they're all running. They're all all of these successful startups from you know big scale ones like Google, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, they were all running these type of processes. So it's super important to learn this terminology and learn this methodology and way of working, you know. And that's why actually this year I've launched my new online school, which is products my first time founders. And the sole purposes of that is that you can take pay your pay is going to be around like $300 have lifetime access and you have this resource you can always turn back to this framework mm-hmm. so whenever business idea you can literally take this off the shelf framework and test the idea and grow it in a more intelligent way and make less mistakes mm-hmm. which actually costs you more than $300 when oh. you calculate the cost of the mistakes that a lot of first time founders make because they just don't know it and they don't have access to the information absolutely my next question was if there are frameworks that you've developed and I love the fact that you mentioned that. But then my question now is that a lot of times for first-time founders, they're doing this on their own. Um, If you happen to be in a technical space, you might have a technical co-founder. So are your frameworks designed in a way that can the product discovery or the discovery can be done by one person um, and can still yield some level of success as opposed to folks that have, you know, bigger teams and have access to um, all the resources? It's a great question. And what I love is that I didn't explain it in my, my, my answer before, but product discovery usually is done by the product manager, the uh, UX designer, and maybe just a lead engineer to test out the technical feasibility. But you can absolutely do it on your own. The only hurdle for you will be the technical feasibility if you're building a technical startup. But then you need to build those networks and relationships. And there's a number of ways to do it. You know, you could either go and work for a startup or in a corporate and work closely with developers and build relationships that way. So you have someone to turn to, to at least ask questions, to at least bounce things off, to at least help you with interviewing in terms of hiring a technical person. They don't have to be the person that joins your startup. Or you could go to meetup groups or Eventbrite um, uh, events and try and meet people at events. Or we all have at least 200 contacts in our phone book. We can tap it up and understand if there's anyone technical that we know, if anyone of our friends has someone technical they know and we shouldn't jump at trying to hire the person rather we should form a relationship so we can learn more about the technical language learn more about technical processes and ways of working like what is agile what does it mean to, uh, to work in sprint or in scrum like uh, have someone that you can test and ask these questions to and lean on when you need technical support you don't add a more you don't need to jump to thinking that i need to hire the person or get the person to join my startup which is what a lot of people jump to in, in terms of panicking but again i said direction over speed right so yeah. we shouldn't be rushing 
trying to monetize on a, and transact on a relationship. We're trying to form a long-term relationship with these people. Mm, that's actually really good. And I want to touch a little bit about the direction of a speed bit. So one of the things that a lot of folks here within the industry, if I can call it that, and the reason why a lot of people fail fast, quote unquote, is because they feel that, you know, someone else might steal the idea or someone else might do what they're doing. And all of, there is all of that anxiety around, you know, the idea and protecting the idea and being the first to go to market and all these different things. What, in your opinion, would you say um, is the best way to sort of like tackle that in relation to some of the principles that you mentioned earlier? So the truth is like no one has started a business and grown it without telling anyone about it. Mm-hmm. You need to collaborate with people along that journey, whether that's investors because you want to grow that business through venture capital and through VC backing, or whether that's in hiring your team, you need to inspire people to join you on board of this journey. And actually the irony is the more you share it with people, the more you improve your pitch, the more you believe in your idea or test whether it's a vision that you actually believe in, the more you can articulate the problem that you're solving, the more you understand how to communicate your business. So it's in your advantage to share more. And when we talk about fail fast, the truth is when we're doing product discovery, usually at least 70% of our ideas fail. But it's good because we're validating the 30% that will actually work. Okay. But sometimes it's taken out of context. Like with Facebook, it was fail, fail, um, move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. And then they evolved to move fast and break things uh, without breaking stable infrastructure, but it didn't sound as sexy, so they didn't roll that out. But the truth is, what you're trying to say is, we wanna be able to to learn things quickly because the goal is a learning journey. Okay, this whole concept of I don't want to share my idea, I don't want someone to steal my my idea. Honestly, it's all about the execution. The risk is ideas are overrated. Execution is undervalued. But it's the execution that really differentiates that person A from person B and not everyone executes in the same way. Absolutely. And if you don't believe in yourself, you don't have the confidence that you can execute on this idea, then maybe you're not the right person to pursue this idea in the first place. Mm. Oh my goodness. That is like music to my ear. Tweetables all the way through. I love it. I love it. No, that was actually really, really good. And thank you. I love the fact that you really mentioned that. Thank you so much, Andy, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today. Um, so can you tell us where people can learn more about you, what you do, what you're up to, how they can access? As, um, you know the the courses that you're you know dropping this year. Sure, sure. So like, like I said, I'm not I'm I'm one to I'm a fan of products management leads into organic growth. So you can simply just Google my name Andy Ayim, which is Alpha Yankee Igloo Mother A Y I M Andy Ayim, um, and you'll see all of the links to to me and my work and what I do. And it will lead you to my website, which is andiim.com, which is probably the first place you can turn to to sign up to my newsletter, my course, or anything that I'm up to, or even submit a pitch deck if you're raising. Oh, nice. Oh, that's actually really nice. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm trying to democratize ac- access so it becomes a lot easier to, to access investors, you know. Wow. Well, honestly, thank you so much for being on the Unfiltered podcast and sharing your unfiltered journey and all of your lessons with us. Honestly, um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank my you. pleasure. Thank Thank you for having me. Well, there you have it, folks. Be sure to check out Andy and his work at andyayim.com. In addition, look out for next week's episode where we chat with Andy about investments, VCs, angel rounds, and all of that good stuff. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Again, it's your girl Aisha Addo asking you and reminding you to stay fast, stay true, and do you. This is Unfiltered. Unfiltered.